liturgy. We're going to look in two places today. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And uh, we'll be back again in Acts chapter number 2. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 16 first. And then in Acts chapter number 2. So in case you're visiting with us today, or in case you haven't been uh, to church in a while, for a number of weeks we've been in a series that is entitled A Biblical Church. And what we're doing is returning week after week to see what Jesus Christ, who is the, the founder of the church, the head of the church, the one who bought and redeemed the church with his own blood, we're looking to what he has written to us in his word about the church. It's important because right now in today's society, we have a number of voices, both outside the church and inside the church, trying to tell us what the church or what the church is or what the church does, and even whether the church is relevant in our lives today. I've heard the claims, and maybe you have too, uh, I don't need to go to church to worship God. I can worship God anywhere. Maybe you've heard all that matters is my relationship with the God I, with, with God. I don't need religion Or maybe you've heard well church isn't for me. It's filled with just a bunch of spiritual hypocrites And I did ask our hypocrites to sit on the front row on this side for us uh, <laughs> <laughs> But the thing is those statements are true I mean you really can worship God anywhere. You don't need to go to a building to worship God but that doesn't mean that we don't need to gather together that that truth should inspire us that we don't need to wait until we gather together to worship god we can worship god anywhere it's not meant to say we don't have to come together and i fully agree that a relationship with jesus is far more important than religion but it's not a reason to abandon religion jesus is the one as we'll see today who founded the church and, and yes, there are hypocrites that abound in the church, and this, sadly, this church is led by the biggest hypocrite. But, you know, that should encourage us all the more to, to realize we're not gathering to follow sinful men who will let us down. We're following a sinless Savior who holds us up. But more and more, Christians are looking at the church as unnecessary, or at best, optional. A recent survey that I just read last week, for the first time ever, those who profess to be Christians, a majority of professing Christians do not see the need to gather with other believers. First time the number of professing Christians that say they need to gather in a church has dropped below 50%. Much of that being fed by the fact that we've not been able to gather during the pandemic, so people say, I don't need it. But this trend, God, this trend has to get us to ask this one question. Does Jesus intend for his disciples to follow him as individuals or as a collective group? Are we to follow Jesus alone? Or are we supposed to follow Jesus with other disciples? In my opinion, if we just look to what the way the Bible describes the church we would see that Christ never intended his followers to hold an individual or an isolated view of church. 
I mean, it's described as a body, which is many members working for one purpose. It's described as a flock, meaning many sheep following the same shepherd. It's described as a family, a number of individuals living together as a single unit. It's called a temple, which is one building put together out of many stones. The church displays a collection of people that find unity. But the beauty is the unity doesn't stop with us as believers. The unity continues with Jesus Christ himself. He calls the church his bride. Could you imagine on a wedding day walking up to one of the people getting married and putting your arm around them and saying, hey, I love you so much, but I can't stand the person you're marrying. So if we're going to have a relationship, it's only going to be if you come by yourself. Think of how hurtful that would be to this couple that is celebrating this relationship and this reunion. And the church is called the bride of Christ. And yet how many Christians say, I don't want the bride, I only want Christ, but two in a marriage become one. The church is also called the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the church, and like, can you love someone from the neck up only? Like, hey, I love your head, but I don't want any part of that body. Instagram posts are filled with like cropped out faces, you know, just this is the only part of this of my spouse that I love No How can we love Christ without loving his bride? How can we love Christ without loving his body? And so if it makes sense that the church is important to Christ Then shouldn't it just make great sense that the church should be important to the followers of Christ? That's why we're in this series, and so far we've been through four characteristics of a biblical church, the worship of God, that the church exists for the glory of God. Yes, the church should do many wonderful things. We should help the poor and needy, but our mission is to glorify God. The church is based and founded and finds its authority in the Word of God. We are to listen, we are to read, and we are to obey God's Word. Church needs prayer. We must go to God in prayer because our hearts will never align with God's hearts. We will want what we want, but as we go to God in prayer, we say, thy kingdom come. Your name be hallowed. Your will be done. And we go on behalf of the collective body of believers saying, our Father, give us our daily bread. Which led us to the last two weeks of biblical community reminding ourselves that the church is not just a place where the same people go at the same time no the church is a group of people who do life together with jesus at the center of everything that's where we where we closed our our series last week as we were talking about how there's two specific roles in our relationship as a biblical community that become a witness to the world around us. We saw in John chapter number 13 where it is the love of disciples to other disciples, a love like Christ loved us, where people see that love and say, wow, you must be a follower of one who loves like that but also in their unity 
as Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, that the believers, his followers, would all be one. But not only one, but they would be one in the Father and the Son. Why? So that the world would believe that Jesus is who Jesus said he would be. Love and unity. And you cannot get either one of those by living an isolated, separated life from other believers. But as we live as a church with love and unity, it provides opportunities to become a evangelistic church, which is our fifth characteristic of a church, evangelism. Now, I know typically when people hear the word evangelism, they think of a TV preacher, or sometimes you think of a, a really loud, passionate preacher who, who screams a lot, he stomps on the platform, and, 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 and calls people to, to Christ. And it makes sense because the dictionary defines an evangelist as this, a person who seeks to convert others to the Christian faith, especially by public preaching. And many evangelists are known for their strong, fiery, convicting preaching and their strong, persuasive altar calls. Many times if a church wants to have a revival meeting, they'll look to an, an evangelist with the hope that people will be saved through his convicting preaching and his passionate altar calls. But, but I want to clear the air on something. Hey, Emily. I'm sorry, I can hear you up here. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, but I want to clear the air that evangelism is, is not convincing someone to pray a prayer. Evangelism is not asking someone to raise a hand. Evangelism is not getting someone to walk forward in an invitation because they, don't, because they want to go to heaven when they die or because they don't want to go to hell. No, that's not evangelism. I'm going to share a definition with evangelism that I just came up with myself as I was studying and preparing. And, and my definition for evangelism is lovingly proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ with the prayerful hope God will complete his work of salvation. Now, I worded that, tried to word that definition carefully because I wanted to be clear about who's responsible for sharing and who's responsible for saving. Followers of Jesus have a clear responsibility to share who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's evangelism. And we should do so with the hope that God will save people. But we have to know the work of an evangelist is not the work of salvation. That's God's work alone. And sometimes, and you may, some of you may know what I'm saying here, but sometimes these lines get really blurry when we move from trying to persuade someone to come to Christ, which we should, as 2 Corinthians 5.11 tells us to, that we should persuade others, but sometimes we move past persuasion to manipulation. We get people to do something without them realizing what they're doing. That's not evangelism. We should excitedly share Jesus with others. We want to be persuasive, but we must never be manipulative as we share Christ. We should lovingly proclaim the truth of Jesus with a prayerful hope God will complete his work of salvation because believers declare the truth. God saves those who trust the truth of Jesus. 
So we're in Matthew chapter 16, and I want to show you in Matthew 16 this morning uh, this, this, this scenario here. As we look at the very first time the word church is ever used, and Jesus Christ himself uses it in Matthew chapter number 16. And I'm going to already give you the outline up front. It's just a full short four-point outline. We're going to look at Peter's bold declaration, God's clear revelation, the church's strong foundation, and then Jesus' strange instruction. So Matthew chapter number 16, if you look at verse number 13, what we're going to find is Jesus is going to ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? They're going to tell him. Then he's going to say, who do you say that I am? And then they're going to tell him. And then Jesus is going to give them some interesting instructions. Verse 13 says, now when, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I'm going to pause right there. That's an interesting answer, isn't it? Now, I'm, I'm not surprised people might think Jesus is a prophet. I mean, he's been preaching and he's been declaring, but, but what I find so interesting is they choose three dead prophets. So they're, like, they're saying that you, you are different. You might be someone God raised from the dead. Which makes me wonder, well, I wonder if that's why there were so many people who wanted to hear Jesus and follow Jesus because they had this high view of Jesus. He might come back from the dead. They had a high view of Jesus, but they were wrong. The same is true in, in the lives of so many people today. You ask people, who is Jesus? And you'll hear a lot of really good answers from like almost 100% of the people you talk to. Some will tell you that Jesus is a religious teacher. Some will say he's a good example. Muslims will tell you Jesus is a prophet. Some religions will tell you Jesus is one of many gods. Atheists who don't even believe in God will tell you that Jesus was a moral teacher. All high views of Jesus. But a high view of Jesus is not sufficient. We must have a right view of Jesus. So Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they answer, and then he says, but who do you say that I am? And this is where we get to Peter's bold declaration. Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples, and this is what he says in verse number 15. But who do, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is a big deal. This is the first time Jesus has been called the Christ. This is the first time that it is being declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And by saying you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, they're saying that you are the long-awaited deliverer, the one sent by God, the one that the entire Old Testament has been pointing to. Peter was confessing in this moment that Jesus was that child promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of woman that would crush the head of the serpent, the promised one of Genesis 12, born to Abraham, that would bless all nations of the earth, the greater Moses, the one who would lead his people out of bondage, but not out of a country, out of sin, and to the true promised land, that he was the sacrificial lamb of God, that all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to, that he was the true high priest of God, one who would offer the once and for all sacrifice to end all sacrifice, 
sacrifices, that he was the true manna, the bread of heaven, the living water. He was the true king of Israel who would lead his people to follow God's law rightly, unlike all the other kings that failed to do. He was the root of David, grown out of the stump of Israel. He was the one Isaiah prophesied would be born of a virgin, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He was the suffering and the silent servant who would be bruised for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions, and the one on whom the Lord laid the iniquities of us all. He was the hope the world had been waiting for. That is what Peter was saying when Peter declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And most people, when they talk about Jesus, they have no problem saying he's a good man or a great prophet or he's a moral example. But if you press in and you ask, but do you believe Jesus is the son of God, the only way to God? And do you believe that it is only through Jesus that your sins can be forgiven and eternal life can be granted to you? And do you desire to make Jesus Christ the Lord of all of your life? At that point, you've drawn a line that many people are not willing to cross. Like, well, I thought he was a good man and a great prophet, but what you're saying, I'm not willing to go there. But to be a true disciple, we have to go there. That's where every follower of Jesus must be. See, we cannot claim to hear, we cannot hear the claims of Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God, to be sent by God, to be the only way to God. We can't hear that and walk away saying, well, he sounds like a good man. He sounds like a great prophet. Not like C.S. Lewis gave us the understanding of what we must do. We must realize when we hear the claims of Jesus, we have three options. This guy is a liar, which is not a good man or a great prophet. Or this man is an absolute lunatic, which is not a good man or a great prophet. Or this man is who he says he is. He is Lord. There's no middle ground for us to find. And that's exactly what Peter was saying when he declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the hope we have been waiting for. But I want you to notice what Jesus, how Jesus responds to that. He looks at Peter and basically says, well, you didn't come up with that on your own. Look at verse 17. Sorry. God's clear revelation says this. And Jesus answered him. Blessed are you. Now notice these words. Simon Bar-Jonah. That's Simon, son of Jonah, or son of Jonas, depending on what your, what your uh, version you're, you're looking at. And then he goes on and says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now this is vital to understand as... As an evangelistic church, we, the church, declare Jesus Christ, but we cannot convince anyone to believe the truth. That is God's work. We'll see that clearer in just a moment, but it reminds me of how many times I used to walk the streets witnessing to people. We would go soul winning, and sometimes I would start to share the plan of salvation with this question. Do you know... If you died today, are you 100% sure that you'd go to heaven? The majority of the time, the answer was no. And would you like to know? Yes. The question wasn't, do you want to know Jesus? The question is, do you want to go to heaven? Who doesn't want to go to heaven? You start to share with the person that you're a sinner separated from Jesus, separated from God, but that God sent his son Jesus to bring us back together. Sometimes you could see the interest just isn't there and you turn away. And I will tell you out of 
complete transparency, but also complete embarrassment. I have uttered these words at times as people walk away as I'm sharing the good, good news of the gospel, asking them, well, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, no, I don't want to go to hell. How do I not go to hell? Well, you pray this prayer. There's a lot of people in this world today who have a hope that one day they will see God at eternity and their hope is based on praying a prayer. That is incorrect. You do not see Jesus Christ. You do not see the face of the Father one day because you prayed a prayer. You only see God because you understand the truth of who Jesus is and you believe it. You declare it. Oh, as we were, as I was preparing this message, I, I, I always stay out of the music. Always stay out of the music. You ask Miss Carolyn, I, I never tell her what we need. But I was like, I would love, since we're talking about Jesus, I'd love to sing a song about, like, just, that's just about Jesus today. And so I caught her Thursday after Bible school outside of her room. And I'm like, Miss Palmer, um, I know I don't, I don't like to tell you stuff because I really love to see how God works. But I would, I would love it if we could sing and end the service with Jesus, only Jesus. And I told her a little bit why, and she smiled. She's like, oh, yeah, we're already planning to sing that. And I was like, oh, well, what else are we planning to sing? Christ is enough and good and gracious king. I mean... It's God's revelation. He's the one who does the work. But let's keep going. Because in verses 18 and 19, we get to the church's strong foundation. This is what Jesus says as he tells Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed it to you. My father's revealed it. And he goes on and says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Wait, stop. Remember, I told you, let's look at the name in the previous verse. Verse 17 was Simon Barjona. And now he changes his name to Peter. Peter means rock. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And like, so these verses can get really confusing if we're not careful. Like, what is the rock that Jesus is telling Peter he's going to build his church on? Because he just called Peter the rock. Is Jesus saying he's going to build his church on Peter? Well, I mean... Peter's about to deny Christ, so... Uh. And even after Peter gets that right, when we read in the book of Acts, as Peter leads the church, Paul is going to have to confront him for not living a gospel life as he lives one way around Jews and another way around Gentiles. I have a hard time believing that God's going to build his, his, his church on the back of someone who's going to fail him. But I also don't think Jesus unintentionally changed Peter's name. I don't think Jesus was saying, I won't use you, Peter, because I say that because in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, members of the household of God, which household of God is church, the church, members of the household of God, members of the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. But we see that, well, the foundation of the church is built with the prophets and the, the apostles as well. So 
What is Jesus saying here to Peter? That you're Peter, and, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And I think it's clear that the rock, the foundation, the basis of the church is the confession that Peter made. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the rock. That is the foundation of the church that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the deliverer. And I want to show you what I mean by that. For the last two weeks as we've been in biblical community, we've started in Acts chapter 2 verse 41 that talks about 3,000 souls coming to the church. And we've kept reading to the end of the chapter to see the beauty of the biblical community of this early church. Let's jump back there. Go to Acts chapter 2. Verse number 41. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41. The conclusion of an entire message preached by Peter, the one Jesus changed his name to, the rock. The conclusion of Peter's sermon is verse 41. It starts in verse 14. We're going to pick it up near the conclusion of that sermon in verse number 36. Look at verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Here's what the Bible says. This is Peter speaking. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus crucified. Now pause. What's Peter saying right there? That's the same confession that he made in Matthew chapter 16. That Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And you murdered him. You killed the Messiah. Notice their reaction. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, well, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, catch this, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There's the work of God again. Peter declared, who is Jesus? He is Lord, Christ, Messiah. Well, what do we do with this? Well, you believe as God calls those who are away from him to himself and then gifts them the Holy Spirit. In verse 40, it says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And what happened? So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Huh. Huh. We've been celebrating the 3,000 souls and how they were a beautiful church unit. Now we see where they came from. They heard the truth of who Jesus was, and they believed it, and they received the word, and God added them to his family. Peter just declared the truth. He didn't convince anyone to pray a prayer that we know of or raise a hand. People heard the truth of Jesus. They, were, they believed. And after they believed, they were baptized and added to the church. So what is the foundation of the church? The truth of Jesus. The truth that we sang this morning. I guess the question is, do you believe him? 
Because the church is meant to proclaim and, and teach the truth of Jesus. And as we do, the church is built on the foundation of that proclamation. The apostles are nothing. You and I are nothing. But if you go back to remember what we read in Matthew 16, verse 19, that Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What? Wait, so the, so the apostles got to say who got to heaven and who didn't go to heaven? <laughs> no. The truth they were holding was the key to the kingdom of heaven. I will tell you, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And if you believe it, you, God, will invite you to his kingdom. Oh. So we see how important it is to be an evangelistic church because if you know the truth of Jesus, you too, as the apostles, hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What do you do with them? And so then we come then to Matthew 16, verse 20. Where Jesus gives a strange instruction. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, that seems to be about as far from an evangelistic charge as you can get. Now that you know the truth, don't tell anybody. Well, why would Jesus say don't tell anybody? Because Jesus knew he had a mission to fulfill. He was coming to die for the sins of the world. And if the Jews began to believe that he truly was the Messiah, they would crown him, not crucify him. The only way he could fulfill his mission as the Messiah was to face the cross. So do you understand what Jesus did for us in this moment? He declared who he was to his disciples and then said, but don't tell anybody because I must die for the sins of the world. Because at this moment, had Jesus said, now go tell everybody I'm the Messiah, he would never have been rejected. He would have been received. He wouldn't have been hated. He would have been loved. But he said, don't tell anybody because I must fulfill my father's work. But after he did, after he went to the cross, after he was buried in the grave for three days, and after he rose from the dead, he gathered that same group of disciples. And no longer is it, don't tell anyone. Now it's the Great Commission saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go everywhere with this truth. And before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So now that his mission is complete, we are called to be the witnesses of the Messiah. And the witnesses is not for gifted believers. It's not for those who feel like, well, I really know how to share. No, it's, it's a command for all of us. If we are a follower of Jesus, we share the truth of Jesus. And to be a biblical church, we must lovingly proclaim the truth of Jesus with the prayerful hope that God will complete his work of salvation. So what does that mean? It means we've got to know the truth for ourselves. Do you truly believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, your only hope for the Father? If you believe it, and if you know it, we share it. We share it with others, but it's not our job to bring them to Christ. It is God's job to reveal that truth as he did to Peter and bring his own 
Christ. And this is, this is exactly what I saw this week in VBS. Teachers who stood in front of their classrooms to teach about Jesus. Crafts being done downstairs to point people to illustrate who Jesus is. Treats were handed out, games were played, and songs were sung. All so that the children who filled these pews could hear more and more and more about the truth of who Jesus is. But I want to I tell you about one particular evangelist in our church. Her name is Lynn Swartzlater. Lynn teaches at Stanley Elementary. On early in the week, she asked, Pastor, are we running any vans? And I said, well, Lynn, we really haven't started our van ministry yet. I, I'm sorry that we haven't been. And she really wanted to run a van. So she talked to, I know, Pastor Micah and Frank Pierce. And Frank started driving a van, went down to Stanley to some of the kids that Lynn visited. She went to their house and said, come to Bible school. And I think the first day there was two of them. And I was standing right out here on Wednesday greeting, greeting people. And, and their van pulled up and Lynn gets out. She's got this big smile on her face. And she opens up the door and like nine kids come out of that van. And she's like, she wants to introduce each one of them to me. This is Pastor Brian. I know he's wearing a weird Hawaiian shirt, but he's really a nice guy. He may not have hair, but he's, he's okay. He really is. And so we had a good time, and we talked, and, and they, they went through their Bible school. And then at, at the closing session, it was time for everybody to come back here after they've done their crafts and their, their fun and their games and their, and their lesson. Everybody comes back in here, and Carrie and, and Mike are having a good time, and they're leading them in songs. And it, it kind of closes with, with a drawing. And, and so they're drawing names, and Lynn is sitting, Jason, right about where you are. And Lynn's sitting there, and she's watching her kids that she brought that day kind of win some prizes. I'm back there with Trent where you are, and I, she is just beaming from ear to ear as her kids that she brought to Bible school are getting prizes. And it's like, oh, that's so cool. Well, they started calling names for people to leave, and I'm standing in the hallway out there. And, and Lynn walks past me with, with her little train of kids. You know? And she's like, Pastor, come with us. And so I was like, okay, I'm thinking we're going to take a picture or something. You know, I had no idea. I mean, like, who wouldn't want to take a picture with me? I'm just kidding. And so I, I follow her, and we walk right into Miss Palmer's classroom. And she sits these six girls down on the front row. Miss Tamara, myself, and Lynn are there. And she says, Pastor, these girls want to know a little more about Jesus. And I was like, really? Well, how cool is that? Well, I am so glad. I said, well, well Miss Lynn, you know them. What, what, what do you think would be important? And so... We talked a little bit to the girls, and one, in, one girl in particular, her blonde-haired girl, and I want to tell you her name because I don't want to embarrass her, but a little blonde-haired girl, she was up here singing earlier today. And she, uh, she's like, well, I, I want to know more. And she asked me a question, and I said, oh, that's a great question. Let me, let me tell you a little bit about why Jesus is so important. See, the Bible says that we're all sinners, and we all come short of the glory of God said, I've heard people say that coming short of the glory of God is like, is like trying, to, trying to hit a bullseye with a, with a dart or, or, or maybe with a, with a ball that, that you can try really hard, but man, it's really hard to hit the bullseye all the time. And we, we can try to do right all the time. We can try to be sinless like God is, but, but we're going to fall short all the time. Like, have you ever fallen short? You ever missed the mark? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, well, here's the bad thing. Because we're all sinners and we miss that mark, God is He's so holy. You can't, can't be with the holy God as a sinner. 
there's a separation. And that separation lasts for all of eternity if we don't do anything about it. And like, that's why Jesus is so cool. Because God loved us enough. He sent his son Jesus, and Jesus walked the earth, and Jesus never sinned. He was tempted like we were, and he hit the mark every time. He never sinned. I said, but then, and I called her name, and I said, do you know what happened to Jesus? How he died? And she's like, well, he, he was crucified. Yeah, do you know something he said while he was on the cross? He was hanging on the cross, Jesus was. And he looked up at, at God and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I said, can you believe it? Jesus felt separated from God, but Jesus never sinned, ever, never one time sinned. Why do you think he felt separation from God when, when he did everything right? She said, I, I don't know. And because it was in that moment, he reached into your life and he took your sin upon himself. He went to that cross and said, I'll be sin so that she can be forgiven of her sin. And I'll be separated from God so that you can go to God. And her eyes began to tear up. And I said, and the cool thing is, and I actually took my shirt off. I said, Jesus actually gives you his robes of righteousness and he drapes them over your shoulders so that we can't even see what's underneath anymore. We only see what Jesus gives you and tears start coming down her face. And I said, and the cool thing about Jesus is he hit the mark for you. So all you have to do, trust in him. And what Jesus did for you, not in what you do, what Jesus did for you, that's how you can go to the Father. We got done sharing that with her, and I said, I, I never make anybody or ask anybody to, to do something they don't want to do. I said, but would you like to trust Jesus? You understand it? She said, I get it. You want to trust Jesus? She's like, yeah. I was like, okay, well, girls, this is a personal decision. I can't make you do anything. This is just something that you'll, but, but I'll happily walk you through it if you don't know what to do. But I said, we're going to, we'll pray a prayer, but the prayer has nothing to do with salvation. It's just words that you utter that you have to believe in your heart. And Tamara was sitting over here and Lynn was sitting over here and I was sitting here and we, we prayed together and I let the girls pray and we got done. We opened up our eyes and I, I looked at the girl on the far right and I said, so did you, did you place your trust in Jesus? And she said, I did. She had a smile on her face. And then this other girl who had the tears running down her face, she couldn't stop crying. And she's like, I did. And then the third girl and the fourth girl and these two over here had already placed their faith and trust in Jesus at a previous time. And I just said, this is why we have Bible school. We want to have fun and we want to sing and we want to play games and we want to feed you, but we want you to know Jesus. And those girls walked out. But the thing about Lynn, sitting over here, I was talking to those girls and I kept, out of the corner of my eye, I kept seeing her do this. She knew it wasn't anything I could say. 
She knew it wasn't anything we could do. She knew that salvation was God drawing those girls to himself, and he could because of who Jesus was. And when we got done praying, and those girls stood up, the smile on Lynn's face was greater than the smile on those girls' faces because she helped them know Jesus. And that lady's probably never going to preach a sermon behind this pulpit. She preaches a sermon with her life and with her words every day she walks into Stanley Elementary. My challenge to you, so do you. Everywhere you go, you preach a sermon with your life and with your words. You are evangelists. If you